0: lead others, and never surrender. It is time to begin seeking excellence.
1: What is going on, everybody? This is your boy, Nathan Crankfield, and I'm super pumped today to have with me my new friend, Sean Clifford, CEO of Canopy. Sean, how we doing, my man?
2: We're hanging in there, Nathan. Thanks for having me on today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's so good to get to do this. You know, I've been talking back and forth with different people at your organization, uh, you know, and trying to support the work that you guys are doing. And so, just really excited to be able to record this podcast with you. Just super thankful for you taking the time out to do this. It's a uh, it's a tough topic, but an important one. So I'm
2: very grateful for us to be in conversation
1: today. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to start with just I, I kind of always start this way with guests. Just tell us a little bit the classic. You know, tell us a little bit about yourself whatever kind of your overview of your life is up to this point.
2: You got it, man. So I'll start with the important stuff. I've been married for 14 years um, with my wife. Gosh, coming up on 19 years now, which is important because it's roughly half of my life. We've been together, which is kind of a crazy milestone to think about. Um, We've got four kids, um, ages nine, eight, five, and two. Um, living in Austin, Texas. Um, Life here is chaotic, but amazing. And uh, moving forward, uh, as you briefly alluded, I run a tech company called Canopy that tries to deliver families and internet free of pornography. And gosh, it's such a strange story. Never in a million years if you had pulled me aside 10 years ago and asked like, what I would spend my day doing 10 years from now, never in a million years thought it would be this topic. But um, al- along the way uh, I had kids, I started to see the ways in which our technology, which is amazing. And I'm very pro-tech. were shaping families in particular and sometimes uplifting us and giving us opportunities to interact with family that lives far away or educate us or, or give us the encouragement in low po- points but also delivering just like a pipeline of toxic content that um, pulls us away from that, which we want to achieve in the world and the type of people that we wanna be. And I looked at this and I was like, this is not gonna go in a good direction. Uh, Sure hope we figure this out. And uh, I went to business school and while I was in business school, had the chance to go out to California and do some projects there. And I was like, we are not figuring this out. And so when I wrapped up, I got a phone call from this amazing tech company in Israel. I was like, hey, do you want to change the world? Do you want to go try to help families figure this out, how we can live with tech well, um, without losing ourselves in the process? And I was like, heck yeah. So I jumped in, those was four years ago, raised around, started the company here in the United States, bringing the tech off to the races, all the highs and lows of startup life. And at long last, we're in the market, uh, Trying to do good. So that was kind of a long-winded rambly version, but uh, hopefully sets us up.
1: No. Yeah, that was perfect. That's so awesome. And I love, you know, you're exactly right. I think it's so interesting. Technology can be so good and it can be so harmful. And, you know, I'm somebody I, I post a lot and do a lot of stuff on social media, both for seeking excellence and really everything I do is for seeking excellence, but I also run my own personal Instagram. Um, and we have one for seeking Excellence that's separate, but I think, you know, people ask me all the time, like, do you think, we should stay engaged. Like, should I stay on social media? Should I be sharing about these like difficult and challenging things as we see, we're like losing the culture and the faith in so many ways. And I'm like, you know, it's not for everybody. Right. And like, you probably know this too. Like you've probably been called to do the work that you're doing, but you, you, like you mentioned, you know, there's some, or we kind of like joked about when we started, you know uh, but there's some dark stuff when you're battling against pornography, right? Like you used to enter into some, some deep stuff that I feel like, Certain people are called to, and not everybody's called to. That's usually my answer, you know, is that not everybody's called to, to enter into these things, you know?
2: Yeah, it's, um, it's right. And I, look, I, I, I owe a debt of gratitude. I had one friend in particular. This was back in 2007, uh, just to date myself for a little bit. We were friends in DC, and we were sitting down over breakfast, and he asked me a great question. What would you do if you made $50 million and you never had to work a day again? Like, how would you spend your time? So yeah. I thought about it. I probably didn't have a very good answer. Um, so I mumbled something, but then I asked him the same question. And this was back in 07. And he, he said, I would dedicate the rest of my life to overcome the scourge of pornography. Well, wow. that was the first time, this was pre iPhone, keep in mind, that someone had really opened my eyes to the role that pornography was playing. And he said he already had friends who were wrestling with it, they were suffering uh, through addiction to it. And he's like, this is going to eat a generation if we don't change it. And so, I mean, I'll just be honest with you. At that time, I was like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. You know, it's not good, but like, it's not, it's not that bad. Yeah. Uh, but the seed was planted and uh, lo and behold, um, he was right. It is eating a generation. And uh, I, I don't know if I've um, found the right messenger or vehicle, but like something has to be done. So
1: onward we go. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. That's, that's a good story. Um, and there's something I definitely would pull out of that. But before I go into that, um, something that you mentioned earlier, too, that really, I think, connects with that, that, that made me think of something that happened to me this past weekend. So I volunteer with my fiance, Emily, once a month with high school uh, high schoolers. They're like high school leaders. and They lead a retreat this spring for middle schoolers. And they were doing testimonies this past weekend, which is, like, adorable and frustrating. And <laughs> all the emotions, right? Watching high schoolers try to, like, execute your guidance in any way. Um, but what, one thing that was really impressive to me, or kind of shocking, was, like, in, in times of darkness for them, like, uh, several of them pointed out, like, seeing spiritual people or spiritual leaders or, or just kind of, like, faith-based content on TikTok or Instagram and how much that actually was uplifting to them mm. in the midst of these downtimes. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I work for Hallow, the Catholic prayer app. And one thing we often tell people about that I think you're doing really well is we always like try to convince these like older priests or parish staff ladies who are like very anti-tech. Right. We always try to say, you know, people like blockbuster didn't go out of business because people watch movies less. Right. People actually watch movies more. It's just the way they do it changed. And so we have so many people who just try to like, say, well, just never give anybody a phone. And it's like, that's not realistic, right? Like, just tell, just tell your kids to never use the internet. It's like, well, that's not really an option, you know? So I love what you guys are doing with Canopy to, to really enter into that and accept the, the landscape and reality for what it is and try to navigate that in a safe way instead of just saying, it, what we talked about a little bit earlier before we started with the Benedict option, you know, of going the extreme other way, just like go Amish, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Which can't be the, yeah. the answer.
2: Well, so in full disclosure, uh, Nathan, I, I always want to make sure that, um, I preach what I practice. Um, so I do not advocate that you force wear technology. Uh, I adopt a much more moderated perspective, which is my kids can get their first device once they've voted in their second presidential election. So <laughs> sometime in their, uh, late, late twenties, but yeah, no, I, I think it's right. And so, you know, we're actually coming out with, um, I'll share one quick thing. We're coming out with a, um, a uh, little TikTok video. This is a foray for us. And it opens up with the following stat. And by the way, this stat is dated, man. I, I, I have to imagine it's changed even since then, but 93% of American 18-year-old boys have already been exposed to hardcore porn. So it opens with that. And then it cuts to a slide. It's like, what does it take to be part of that 7%? And we go through the extreme steps. So it's TikTok. It's got to be a little funny, but we go through the extreme steps you would actually have to walk through in order to be shielded from this. So one's go Amish. Second is live in a cave, right? Third is cut all electricity to your house. But like, these are things that are not going to happen. And so it ultimately concludes with like, or you can just live a normal life and put canopy on your phone, um, which is kind of the punchline there. But yeah, I think like That's you awesome. raised a serious point, which is this stuff is not going away, whether we like it or we don't like it. And there's, there's much to celebrate and much to denigrate. It's not going away. And so I think the task for us, for those who live in this world and still care about how it shapes us, is to figure out how to live well with it. And that sometimes may be postponing adoption, um, but it's got to be actually equipping our communities to figure out how to live well with it, because like this stuff is here too much of our education has been pushed onto it too much of our work has been pushed onto it too much of our social life now exists on for again for better or worse and it's it's our responsibility as the first generation to really wrestle with this in earnest to to be like okay are we up to the task we got to figure this out like there's no
1: alternative we got to so absolutely that's so awesome man yeah i think what you just said there about it's really not going away it's been cool to see i think like uh fight the new drug came to benedictine college last year when i was working there which was really awesome to see there is really a much more i think a much more prevalent movement even celebrities who have joined in this kind of transparency and like coming out with like their testimonies of their struggle against pornography you know and secular organizations that are moving against it. you see very similar things happen i think uh you know we talk about this a lot with like birth control as well there's like a lot of secular organizations that are coming out and talking about like some of the science as as just trying to give people transparency of like, like make an informed decision. You know what I mean? Like you can still do what you want in the secular organizations are not saying it's a moral thing either way, but just like transparency in these, in these industries that just like lacked it completely. And it was almost just this like foregone conclusion that yeah, everybody sees porn as like like porn. And and I think that's really interesting how they're both so tied together. I think with, like when you're 12 or 13, like, yeah, you see like boys are watching porn and girls are going on birth control. It was just kind of this like accepted thing. And nobody really looked into like, what's the impacts of that?
2: Yeah, it's, um, I think you're right in terms of like the broader normalization of, uh, you know, porn, especially and um, it's timely, uh, that you bring this up. I don't know if you saw some of the headlines, but just yesterday, Billy Eilish, uh, Yeah, I did. Yeah. One one of the most popular musicians right now. Howard Stern, right? Yeah. And she she came out and she said, porn destroyed my brain and it devastated me Um, and it warped her imagination. She thinks she calls it a total disgrace. And here you have this, uh, you know, this woman. And like, look, if you listen to some of the song lyrics um, I don't know the extent to which uh, she's simpatico and all the things we're talking about, but like, you have a lot more voices of people from all backgrounds coming out and saying, this is not okay. And just the one thing I'll I'll say to kind of close out that thought is with that story, I think you're going to have a lot of parents read that and they're going to be shocked. But you're like, what on earth happened to Billie Eilish? And I think you're going to have a lot of kids read it and be like, I'm not surprised. And part of that gets to, there's a big um, chasm between how kids understand pornography today, new porn, right? Which is different from old porn and how parents do it. So for, for a lot of parents, they think porn's just like an old Playboy magazine, which is not great. Maybe it's misogynistic and like problematic, but like it's not gonna fry your brain. And new porn, which is defined by Pornhub, which completely is a whole different level of intense, intensity, accessibility, quantity, uh, and addictiveness. And that's like a that that's one thing. like if anything comes out of this podcast, like I just hope people recognize we're dealing with a far more potent drug than existed thirty years ago, twenty years ago, even ten years ago,
1: right? yeah, it, it is it is really wild. And I think, you know, one thing I want to hit on there before we really start to talk about some of the effects and things like that, and you can feel free to utterly disregard this if you want. Just, just a thought that came into my mind that I really want to highlight. <laughs> I think is really important. I told you we get into everything here, so getting a little bit political for a moment, um, and you can feel free to disagree as well. I always invite that, you know. But one thing I, I, I often talk about this. I have just to give you some context, Sean. Like my political journey, I was like super pro Obama, like registered as a Democrat at eighteen. I served in the military for four years, became more and more conservative as I was in the military. And now I consider myself kind of like a religious Christian conservative. Um, but I'm not like super, super Republican, but I, I do generally hold like more conservative positions. Um, but what, one thing that I always like stress the difference between, and I think I see this a lot when it comes to pornography issue, is I stress there's a difference a lot between conservatives and libertarians. And you see a lot of libertarians who now vote Republican. And it's a it's can be confusing to certain people because like if you ask like Matt Walsh and Michael Knowles and Ben Shapiro like their thoughts on like should pornography be illegal Ben Shapiro who's more libertarian typically says that he doesn't think it should be illegal um, where Matt Walsh and Michael Knowles would say that they they would think it should be illegal and I think that it can be a big difference and I think one of the things that's really important in that and one of the things that I think can penetrate even conservatives and even religious conservatives in that. Is that kind of mindset you just talked about? It's not that big of a deal, you know, and that we don't recognize like the cultural problem uh, and the issue that it really springs out of, you know. And I think that even even just like putting restrictions on pornography websites, right? Like you have to enter in your birthday to go into. Uh, they always use this example: you have to enter in your birthday to go to like JackDaniels.com. But a lot of pornography websites, you don't even have to like even even just <laughs> so falsify or lie about your age, right? Like there's no restrictions are, are kind of gateways to get into it. And so I just think that's one area. This is a big topic that I think is really, really um, problematic in our society that I do think is a huge difference between like typical conservatism and libertarians. Um, the more like kind of just everybody do whatever they want. Yeah. Approach.
2: Yeah. Well, look, I think you put your finger on a divide on the right um, with respect to how they treat this issue. And like my sense is that um, the libertarian perspective, with respect to porn, is going to become increasingly untenable. And I'll just give you one one case study. Like, if you actually go back and do a survey of how libertarians have talked about drugs historically, and then you look at like the last two years, when I mean, I don't know if you've seen the stats on this, like opioid use is like through the roofs, and suicides yeah. or overdoses are just spiking. It's just like unbelievably devastating how many people are dying in this country. They call them deaths of despair um, from either suicide, but usually from overdoses of opioids. And like when that's happening, the libertarian argument that, Hey, you should just be able to do whatever you want uh, is not finding as much traction or resonance among the population because people acting in their own free will and volition in a uh, kind of broken culture are ending up in really bad places. And as a, as a broader society, we're like, we're not okay with that. Um, so that's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I'll say, even, even amongst uh, libertarians, uh, you'll find very few who think it's okay for kids to see porn. Right. It's like, we could have a debate here. I'm like, more than happy to jump into this about whether or not like a 25-year-old guy should be free to go on Pornhub and like look at it. So, and so whether that should be legal, whether that's advised, uh, and we can have that. Very, very few people, even among libertarians, are like, yeah, it's totally cool for an eight-year-old to go on Pornhub and see what's on there. Um, and so, like, that's the distinction that I want to make now. I think that we need to have a broader discussion about pornography, but I think the starting point has to be we first have to make sure the kids aren't on it, and Absolutely. that's both because they're more formative. But like, again, my my wife is a uh, neuroscientist, and like, she can attest to the fact that like when your brain is when you're eight years old and that prefrontal cortex is still coming along, first of all, that executive override is not necessarily where it will be 10 years from now. But secondly, when you experience certain things, it just shapes you at a deeper level right? Uh, in the developmental process. And so that's the thing that I, like. I'm most adamant about is like, look, I'll have that debate about whether you think porn should be fine and legal and advisable, but nobody thinks kids should be into this kind of stuff. I'm like, let's start there. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, that's so real. And it's it's crazy. You know, the, the thought you just gave me, even like with a debate within the 25-year-olds, it's like, Think of the the warnings and things you have to put on like cartons of cigarettes, right? Or like obviously like drugs. Uh, I mean, we have a ton of distilleries here in Denver, right? And there's like all these things that they have to do, and it's like super sketch. And um, but there's like a lot of warnings and like specific things they have to do. That you can see it like on their windows and the way they have to like have the buildings. There's a ton of regulation over it, right? Even though it's legalized, it's very heavily regulated. Where porn is the most addictive thing, I think, in our society that Like there's just, there's no, there's no restrictions on that, right? Like there's very, very little regulations and oversight, even to, even if you have the argument where you think that 25 year olds should be able to indulge in that. It's like, still, we have no idea, or we don't really form people that have an informed decision making process where they actually understand the risk that they're undertaking and what impact this is going to have on their lives.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's, uh, that's a really good point, both that we don't understand, what this is, um, and where it leads. Um, and I think that's just like, I'll give you one small example on that. Um, pornography can be very addictive. Not everyone who watches it is going to become an addict, but a lot of people do. And in order to get the same high, and you find this with heroin as well, you've got to intensify the experience. So you start off with just a little bit, but to get the same high next time, you got to go further out and further out. And there have been a uh, multitude of studies that demonstrate you start off looking at what people would consider to be normal porn. And then within two years, if you keep at it, which most people do because it's addictive, um, you find yourself, your taste being drawn in very strange directions. And mean, Billie Eilish actually talked about this where she did, yeah, was because okay, of this escalating um, aspect of pornography, like she got into BDSM and other stuff. Uh, which is what the brain demands. And like, we can get into why the brain is wired to want novelty in this domain, but it is. And so I think first people do not recognize when they sign up at the very outset where this thing can lead. It's just, it's not, it's not something that they are uh, rationally opting into. And like, if they did know that, like um, it's still like the outcomes are pretty problematic, potentially problematic enough that like, uh, I'm not sure we should look at decisions to kind of opt in is uh, always well informed.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I'd love to go into that. So that's what I want to talk about next. Is kind of like what are some of these effects? So how, let's let's do our best now, especially you leading the way because you're the expert. But what is you know what are some of these effects that people need to know about going into pornography? Because I think it's something that I think the church really fails people in because a lot of times we talk about you know obviously I think it's almost implied, but we talk about the fact like watching pornography is a sin, masturbation is a sin. Like a lot of these things are bad for, you know, like they're bad for your relationship with God. Um, and I think it's pretty clear and understandable how that's true. I think that anybody who watches pornography or has watched pornography before, you know, uh, like I, I remember I was, I converted to Catholicism when I was 13, but, um, like my journey of like being exposed to porn, I think it was 10 or 11. And then, you know, you're 12 or whatever. And like, I didn't need to be like fully formed in my faith to know like I don't feel good after this. You know what I mean? Like I don't feel like this is this is what good people do. You know, it doesn't mean that I'm saying that everybody that's addicted to porn or whatever is a monster, but th- like there's a natural shame that I think that comes along with it. Yeah. From any type of like, if you have any type of like well formed conscience, you know what I mean? Like even just like my baptism as a child or just like religion class. Like I was like, this this can't be good. You know what I mean? Like even at my 11 year old brain could like kind of process that like, something's kind of wrong with this. Um, but let's, let's talk a little bit more about that. Cause I think we don't go into the weeds enough of like, what are the actual negative impacts other than, um, obviously the huge one that it separates you from, from Christ through sin.
2: Yeah. So, um, do you want to start with like the communal worldly impact or like the individual body and brain impact?
1: Um, let's go individual first and then we'll go out to communal. Okay. Okay. So a couple things to note, which I think are just important facts
2: to establish just so that people can put some of these um, facts into context. Um, I spoke very briefly about the difference between new porn and old porn. Let me just break that down a little bit to uh, um, add context to the conversation. For so many people, Playboy represents pornography. And it was, this is in my mind, old porn. It was a static magazine that maybe had 12 images of naked women. And that was problematic. And Kanye West talked about like how uh, much trouble he got into because his dad left Playboys hanging around the house. Uh, And so it was like, I'm not saying it's fine uh, or good, but it was limited in its scope and limited in its ability to impact you. Still had that possibility, but um, the potency was less. New Porn, on the other hand, is defined by Pornhub, the most popular, largest porn website in the world. And there's three things. The first is um, just the accessibility. It used to be that you had to work hard to find porn. Now you have to work hard to avoid it. Thanks to all of our smart devices um, with just a couple button clicks at any time of day, anywhere in the world, um, at any trigger, you can just immediately log on and find pornography. So uh, the accessibility has completely changed you no longer have to have this embarrassing moment when you go to like the back of the VHS store behind like the creepy uh, curtain and like ask for the stuff. So like it's, it's removed that uh, difficulty. The second thing that's important is um, the intensity. New porn, because instead of like a static image on a glossy magazine, it is HD videos. Um, And there's infinite variety effectively. And so, with respect to intensity, it's the most important, you know, most potent, bingeable pornography ever created. And that has really important implications for um, the brain. Uh, and these things combined and the third thing, which is like it's just much more addictive as a result, it's much more formative. Mm-hmm. So, with, with that kind of landscape in mind, let me talk about what new porn is actually doing to our kids today. First, it's rewiring the brain, it's actually changing the way that the brain looks both in terms of like you can do fMRI scans right now of people watching porn and see what's going on in the brain. And guess what? It mimics a lot of the neuro, uh, chemistry that exists in when addicts are using drugs. So it's like the first thing we now know, but it's actually resulting in changes to the brain such that you can do a brain scan now. And someone who's been watching porn for two years, you actually can tell just from the brain scan that something's going on. Um, there's been studies to demonstrate that it reduces the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that's kind of like the CEO, right? So you'll have reduced brain mass if you keep up this kind of activity. Um, And so just like from a very physical neurological level, you can see the difference. From a psychological level, it is completely shaping your sexual template, your understanding of what intimacy should be, what's normal, what's acceptable, and what actually gives you that Um, impact in the brain that you should get when you're like with someone in an intimate, cherished, loving relationship. And so this results in everything from, look, huge number of guys under the age of 30 now have erectile dysfunction. And it's not because their pipes and biology don't work, it's because their brain has been uh, warped in a way that it just does not, like they need something weird uh, in order to get to that same place. Also results in um, kind of Divergent expectations, like guys that have been watching porn for a long time, much less likely to be happy in a stable monogamous relationship, much less likely to find their spouse attractive, much less likely to report that they actually have a good love life, even when they're in a committed marriage where like everything else should on paper be there for them. So whether you want to look at like the actual change to the brain, the psychological change, whether it's like shaping your perspective. Or the like sociological impact where if you've been watching this stuff, if you've seen like the average 18-year-old American boy who's been watching porn has seen 10,000 naked women by the time they turn 18, it's hard to go from that into a healthy, happy, monogamous relationship and just like flip the switch. And one of the damaging things is like I talk to a lot of teenage boys uh, who are like come to us. And like, Hey, I'm struggling with something, but they think in their mind, I do this now. And someday when I get married, like I'll just stop. And like, the sad thing is your brain doesn't work like that. It's like a battleship. Like you, you've got neuroplasticity. You can rewire your brain. That's the good news. The bad news is it's like a battleship. It takes time. You want to turn that thing. You can, but like, just recognize it's going to take a while to get to the point where you can have a healthy brain again.
1: Yeah. Digging those tracks, takes some serious effort and time. No, you're hundred percent right. And so, yeah, you covered, you covered a lot of great things there. I appreciate the way that you broke that down. I think, you know, it's crazy to think about how different the, the lack of deterrence is, I, you know, you mentioned that at the beginning of how you used to kind of have to go back. It was kind of like, kind of embarrassing, right. Like to, to go and try to buy the, the nudie mag or to go into the, the store that sold them or, you know what I mean? Or, or buy them even at Walmart, at these public places, like you had that kind of like natural deterrent to it. Right. Um, And and when we lose that, like, it's, it's kind of mind blowing to me that a lot of older generations don't understand just that part alone, how much more prevalent it would be and how much more of an issue this is, you know, like the people who, who are, you know, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, whether it's like, it's not that big of a deal. Like, We had naked stuff when I was a kid, you know, like the magazines, they think it's the same. It's like, how can you not realize how big of a deal that is where you don't have to like wait and sneak away when your parents are gone or you know what I mean? If, if your parents had them in the house or if somebody had them in the house, you know, brother or whatever, got one from a friend or something like that. But now it's just like any device, you know what I mean? Like every, ever the average home, I mean, probably has, you know, six to 12 devices that can like access pornographic content.
2: Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's the default. So like, we know how damaging this stuff can be, but effectively we continue to provide our kids unfettered access to the internet and all the porn in the world. And when you hand over an unprotected device, you have to assume, even if it's the best, most honest, good kid out there, that they're going to be exposed to this stuff. And like the right. stats around this back it up. Um, you know, the average age of exposure in the United States today, one study reports is nine, somewhere between nine and 10 years old. Um, and like the thing that gets me is like, if you look at what toys, I have a nine-year-old daughter right now. You look at what toys are popular among nine-year-olds and then think that's, they can either be like playing with that toy or they can be like watching and exposed to hardcore porn. It's just devastating. So like the age of exposure is, ba- is bad. Just the other thing I'll, I'll quickly note is that, look, we know there are other addictive things out there. Um, but- heroin costs money. And eventually for most people, you run out of money before like you can just like indulge. Porn is free online as much as you can possibly consume. And even then you can't scratch the surface. Right. Um, and so it's one of the few addictive things that cannot be satiated. And since it's free and so available, you can consume it to the point that your brain changes in such a profound way. Such that like most people run out of money before they get there with heroin or other addictive things. Um, and, but porn, you can be like a, you know, it's hard to be, um, you know, we talk about like alcohol addiction, like, which, which is real, but like, it's hard to be a high functioning alcoholic. Um, porn on the other hand, like can warp you, but the change can be much more subtle. Like you can be addicted for years and years before it outwardly manifests itself which in some respects makes it even more insidious for our other addictions, like hard to hide that you're a meth addict, um, right.
1: yeah.
2: you know, which, which gives people a chance to intervene and like seek help and whatnot. This thing can fester inside and just like warp you uh, in pretty profound ways before anyone even knows um, that you've taken that first step.
1: Yeah. Which is wild. And, and yeah. And so I think just the ability to to hide it in that way too, you know, that couple with deterrent, obviously, It's going to be unbelievably impactful to the, you know, just the prevalence of it and just the commonality of, of the addiction. I think it's crazy to think about. And then you also mentioned the, the intensity of it and just how much that increases. And I'd love to go a little bit deeper into, into why that is. You had kind of briefly mentioned why the brain kind of goes deeper and deeper into the intensity of it and, um, yeah, I think it, it is. So, you know, I even remember like my friends and things like that when I was in middle school and like, I talked about, you know, being first exposed to it sometime around that I don't like, remember, I don't have like a specific age, but I think it was somewhere between like 10 and 12. And, um, I think, you know, I think back to like a lot of those, th- these, my friends and stuff, like it, like started with just like simple curiosity you know, and like somebody had exposed it to them. And it's like, you have this kind of curiosity because nobody's talked to you about any of this stuff. And so you just kind of want to like learn, right. And you're just kind of like, you know, watching stuff just to kind of learn, which is really twisted and messed up, obviously, but you know, you can have like compassion for somebody who's, who's that young and that misguided and is exposed to something that's completely abnormal and confusing and all this stuff. And they're just trying to like understand it and how that grows into this like Billie Eilish mentioned getting to just like a lot of violent stuff that goes on there, which also leads, I mean, this is something Fight fight new drug talks about a lot into so much in the, uh, sexual traffic, sex trafficking industry mm. as well, you know, and just the support and like the ties between those two industries is really heartbreaking as well.
2: Yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah, the whole thing is, is devastating and dark. Um, look a couple quick things i'll say the the first is like there's one study I actually read this week which said that the age of first exposure like the the younger you are the more likely as a boy if you're exposed younger as a boy the more likely when you're a man you are to try and dominate women in sexual relationships like there's a direct correlation there so um and it plays itself out in so many twisted ways like that um let me jump in, though, to your question about the intensity of it. So um, there's actually something called the Coolidge Effect, which is named after um, President Calvin Coolidge. Um, it's kind of a funny story how this came to be a psychological term worth looking up uh, offline sometime. Um, but the Coolidge Effect basically is a psychological term to describe that our brain craves novelty, especially with in like the sexual realm. So like certain stimulation, sexual stimulation, novelty counts for a lot. And that's like the animal side of us. And this is the same in, in like most mammals. Um, but since this kind of hardwired into us, um, when you are exposed to infinite pornography, which effectively comes with high-speed internet in a way that doesn't come with Playboy, you can satiate that. You can just like go to the next video and the next video and the next video. And that capability um, is what unlocks this like dopamine escalation circuit where to get the same high, you got to do something more extreme and more extreme and more extreme. And that's been part of our nature for a long time, Nathan, but it's only recently when we've had the ability to satiate it, thanks to like the infinite variety that's out there, that it's really started to have a profound impact on the brain. I'll give you one example, not to get too dark into this, but if you go to the largest porn site out there today and you look at the most popular 100 videos from the last year, over 50% of them involve like incestual relationships, like stepmom and son or like stepdad and stepdaughter, like it is messed up. And you have to ask yourself, like, what on earth is going on? What accounts for like this strange stuff? And this is like among, I mean, it's going to sound weird, but like this is among the more mainstream porn sites out there. This is not one of the like weird esoteric ones. And that fact can be explained by the brain seeks novelty. You got to find something different and weird and taboo and new every time you go because you get bored and tired of the old stuff. And so um, this, you know, the intensity of the experience uh, and the variety of it drives people in directions that they themselves never would have anticipated uh, years ago or even months ago, but it's just, it's just the way the system's working out.
1: Yeah, that is, that is really interesting to think, uh, think of it in those terms of, yeah, it just, what's obviously and objectively becoming more and more popular, especially because a lot of people who visit those sites obviously are, going to be the people who are more addicted and have been in this, you know, cycle for years and just how it escalates is, yeah, it is is really dark. It's really sad. It's really uh, unfortunate to think about so many people who um, just find themselves in this kind of like state of denial that I feel like commonly accompanies it, you know, and there's almost been this like desensitization not almost. There has been a desensitization, really, since the beginning of the sexual revolution for all of these things, right? But I mean, you have, uh, I mean, there there are schools across the country now, especially in places like California, New York, where they push all kinds of crazy stuff, but including like teachers either in libraries or at public schools, like teaching that masturbation is healthy and that it's necessary and all of these things to young kids, to kids who are not even in middle school yet or are in middle school. And when you think about how much, you know, the, the, we always talk about how, like, the devil's greatest trick is is making you think that he doesn't exist, right? And that's kind of like, yeah, and that's, that's, that's kind of been the thing with this is, like, when you remove the stigma, um, you lose a lot of this. And, and there's almost, uh, I forget who I was reading. I, I don't know if it was Fulton Sheen, somebody recently, uh, where it was a quote about um, how there is, like, shame can be good sometimes. And we try to act like we should never experience any of it. But like, sometimes it's good to have like a healthy sense of shame when you do shameful things, you know? And so what do you think about kind of the culture just move to, uh, you know, dig stigmatize these types of things and, and how that's kind of affected all of it
0: and Uh, how we can fight against such, it's
2: such a good question in part, because I think one of the reasons this issue, which I think it's far more prevalent than most people realize remains underreported is the element of shame. There are so many and like I can tell you stories when I was raising around to try and get this company off the ground. I'd be in a uh, venture capital firm's fancy office. I would do my presentation, I would take questions, and then meeting would end and like most people would file out. And I'd be sitting there and usually one guy would stick around and he's like, I've been addicted for like 10 years and I can't escape it. And didn't bring it up during the meeting because like there's, you know, there's a shame to addiction overall it seems to be especially deep on this issue. So that's tough. And you put your finger on a tension, which is, um, you want to alleviate shame. I don't think shame is a constructive force here, but at the same time, you don't want to normalize an activity and suggest that it's okay. Right. Um, and that is a tricky thing to do. Um, and so I think that's one of the, the tasks before us. I think you're starting to see, you know, look, we live in a hypersexualized culture, number one. And so um, there are many things that are on primetime television that would have been considered porn or soft porn like a generation ago. Right. And, or just go scroll through any random TikTok or Instagram feed and like you will not see any shortage of uh, provocative images. It's so, like it's hard to say that's okay. But then, this next incremental step is not. So that's just like one of the challenges that we have to confront. I think we also have the challenge of, we have a culture that um, effectively tees up instant gratification and celebrates titillation, right? The infinite scroll and these endless feeds effectively reward your desire for like just another hit and another hit and another hit. So those are two big things we got to tackle separately. But on the question of like how we speak about this, I think one of the most promising things is that, the public health community is really starting to pay attention and talk about this issue. And one of the reasons I think that's helpful is like the traditional opponents of pornography have come from, have been making moral arguments and they're coming primarily from religious backgrounds. And I think there's an incredibly important role for that in part because if you want to shape hearts and minds, like oftentimes that's where it's coming from. But the thing that the public health community can do is they can break up the trench warfare um, that exists on this. And so like, if you go to any crowd and you say abortion, both sides retreat to their respective corners. They've heard all the arguments. You're not going to persuade them. It's Very hard to persuade people on uh, some of these topics. porn's literally the same way. But when you have a new surprising voice enter the field and make an argument that you weren't expecting, that's when you have a chance to kind of shift things. And so I look at like the pediatric um, expert at Harvard who's coming out and it's like, yeah, this is destroying a kid in a really profound way. You guys should stop. And this should be part of what pediatricians are talking to parents about when their kids turn 10, which is the age of exposure. When you have feminists who are coming out of the Me Too movement and they're like, shoot, (laughs) maybe this like, maybe pornography is like actually a bad thing. Maybe it's like facilitating a lot of this misogynistic, disgusting behavior that results in the kind of abuses that we saw. When you have these voices from unexpected places coming out and actually agreeing with their traditional opponents about it, that to me, I think is a moment where you're going to have an opportunity to, to redefine how this issue is viewed, coupled with this last thing, which I think could be the game changer which is really sad, but also I think represents some hope. You now have more and more individuals who know someone personally that has suffered tremendously as a result of porn. Whereas it used to be like maybe one out of, you could like name one out of 10, like that fraction is shrinking. Um, The number of people that I know who've gotten divorced and they cite pornography. I mean, I you know, it's double digits, right? Uh, The number of people, parents that I've spoken with, and look, self-selection, I run this company, so like people come to me. Sure, yeah, you're
1: gonna have a little bit higher.
2: Um, It's like a lot of parents are like, I had no idea. And my kid is now 12 and they've been watching this for two years. What do I do? And so just the um, aggregation of individual families that have seen this firsthand and seen the pain that results from it, I think there's gonna be appetite to, talk about this and treat it very differently than you found, you know, 20 years ago, but even five years ago.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's so interesting. I I love, I I really appreciate your, uh, your kind of clarification of what I said there too. When In regards to shame first, um, and just talking about the fact that, yeah, we don't want people to have shame when they're coming forward, right, and coming forward for help. And I think, it's to me, it's very analogous to confession, right? Like, you shouldn't have shame when you're coming back to, to go to confession, right, or you're approaching God for His mercy. Uh, you know, I love the quote that says the only thing you should have shame or, or feel bad about is is neglecting to come forth for God's mercy, right? Neglecting to seek forgiveness, and that's where I feel like the shame should it almost exist. You know what I mean? It's like when you really like are like in, engaging in it and saying, you know, like there's nothing wrong with this. Like I'm just gonna do it forever. Like there is a healthy sense of not feeling good about that, right? Of not feeling good about living that lifestyle and the impacts that it has, especially when you get older and you're married, or even before you, if you're planning to get married. Um, And not not really realizing the uh, the impact that it's going to have on your family down the road, and and you mentioned that in in when you explained everything of what you know Sarah Swafford refers to as like the altar switch, right? Like a lot of people think that there's this altar switch in a lot of different areas of life, but pornography is one of them, where you think that on the day you get married, like you just get to like press this button, right? Now even though you've been a porn addict or you've been watching porn twice a week for five years, like now all of a sudden you're going to be this super awesome husband and get to live, uh, you know, monogamous lifestyle until you're dead.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, the brain usually doesn't work that way and man, ultra switch. I have not heard that. That's such a great, that's such a great way to kind of capture. I think the attitude that a lot of people have, and you know, the thing that we've talked about when we, you know, especially and look, this is an issue for both sexes. Um, the rates of consumption are higher historically for men and they remain so today. Um, And I've heard a couple of voices that have basically framed it like this. Pornography can be addictive. And there are a lot of people that are trapped in that addiction who desperately want to get out. And so they should not be chastised for being there, especially when so many people are there. Um, But the posture that's just unacceptable and really needs to be combated is the, is the person who's consuming pornography and is unapologetic about it.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: that's the attitude that I think should be um, no longer defensible, both in terms of what we know from what it does to your own brain, to your capacity for you know, forming healthy, loving relationships. And the thing that we've kind of briefly touched on, but just like the demand that this creates for the most exploitive industry out there I mean, I, I honestly can't think of something that's more exploitative than the porn industry. You know, and, and we sometimes get at this by asking the following question. A lot of pornography is features trafficked women. What percent are you okay watching? No, like knowing that not a hundred percent of it is not consensual. So what percent are you okay watching being unconsensual? is it 10%? Is it 5%? Like, what's that number for you where you're going to keep watching and you're just like recognize that of a hundred videos, like five of them are going to be trafficked women who are effectively being raped on screen. And like by framing it in that way, which I know is provocative and harsh, but like, it's the reality of it. Like people that are consuming pornography are creating incentives for the producers to pull more in. Um, And it's happening in, in great numbers. And Um, it's just like, it's, it's devastating and we cannot be blind to that. I mean, it's the great Wilberforce quote, which I'm going to paraphrase, but like you may choose, um, to look away and not take action, but you can never again say that you didn't know. And we need to make sure that people know what actually this industry is all about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that, that goes back to the, the original or something we talked about earlier is this whole, it's not that big of a deal. You know, and people really failing to realize that and what all goes into it. You know, and that it's not—it's bigger than you know, just so boys will be boys. You know, or just some some simple side activity that that middle schoolers are doing. Like this is a—it's a big deal, and I think that the intimacy uh, aspect of it is huge um, as well. You know, and you talked about that and how much it affects marriages. You mentioned knowing double digits uh, couples, number of couples in your own life, your own experience who have cited pornography as uh you know the reason why they got divorced i was listening to another podcast uh a cat i think it was the catholic talk show i uh, was talking about it today or, or i mean this is a couple of years ago but i listened to it today and they talked about how like pornography usage for amongst married people almost mirrors like the divorce rate that you have in our country you know right around like 50 percent of people in marriage is saying that they use pornography and the divorce rate being around um 50 percent and um Another one that you mentioned that's really big, that I'd like to touch on again real quick, is the erectile dysfunction. I think that that's something that I was constantly, I was learning, I was hearing a lot about that when I was in the army. And then what like I was in the army from 15 to 19, 2015 and 2019. And so uh, during that time, you had things like Roman and um I'm trying to remember, there was like another like hymns. really, really big one, right? Like th- these hymns. like, what is it? Hymns. Yeah, hymns. And there's like these big, companies that take out all these huge ads, right. And they have commercials and all these things about erectile dysfunction. It was like, why are we talking about that so much? Like, you know what I mean? Like you, yeah. you see it just, it's the exact same timeline.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it really is. So like the, the staff that I'll throw out in um, maybe off 5% here. So forgive me if I am, but um, when you look at men who sought medical attention for erectile dysfunction 20 years ago, Effectively, 0% of them were under the age of 30. And today, when you look at men who seek medical attention for erectile dysfunction, 25% of them, one out of every four are under the age of 30. And this is completely attributed to uh, pornography. And it's not like traditional, like Viagra helps if um, the pipes aren't working right? It's a biological issue. As you age, um, things happen. The new form of erectile dysfunction is psychological. It's that your brain has wired in expectations of what it needs. Uh, and that's the primary cause. And so that it's a, it's a real thing. I mean, I like, and and this is, (laughs) I had a friend joke with me that like, here I am when, when we're out on the fundraising trail, like, pounding the pavement trying to raise around to like get rid of pornography and if we had instead offered like a band-aid to the symptom of erectile dysfunction associated to it we would have raised 10 times as much money because oh, yeah. the market is passive and uh and whatnot which is sad on many levels but um is a testament to the fact that this is real and is happening and more people are aware of it um but it, it's still kind of below the surface uh and so, yeah, I'll, I'll share one more anecdote on that. Um, one of my friends uh, is involved with a uh, Christian mentorship group and attended one of their summer camps. He was a camp counselor there. And while there, he overheard a conversation. I want to be very clear he didn't initiate it, he wasn't uh, bringing this up, but he overheard a conversation of these high school kids talking about this. And one out of five self disclosed that they had ED these are like 17 and 18 year old boys. And, um, my friend says he doesn't think that's uncommon either in terms of like them actually suffering through this issue or in terms of younger guys talking about this, because it has become such a normalized part of American adolescence, which is devastating, but like, it's just the air that they're in and like the water that they swim in, um, which is just terrifying. And so we've, we shouldn't be surprised that like the most severe impacts of this uh, such as ED arise. And look, I, even as I say this, Nathan, I'm sure a lot of people are going to be rolling their eyes and thinking this is scare tactics from a guy who wants to sell something. But I've talked to too many people that deal with um, American teenage boys in particular, whether they're coaches or youth pastors or counselors to know that like this is something that's happening at scale and like it's not moving in the right direction.
1: Absolutely. No, that's really big. I appreciate it. I think it has been uh, probably not our most uplifting episode ever, but a very <laughs> needed yeah. one. Uh, and so thank you so much for sharing all of that. But I want to you know be mindful of your time here. but just can you talk to us a little bit more about like the details of like what canopy does, how it can help and, and any other advice you have for somebody who might be out there who's addicted to pornography or knows somebody who is?
2: Absolutely. So look, Canopy is a cutting-edge tech solution. We're the only tool out there that can scan internet traffic in real time, identify pornography, and block it before it hits your screen. The net effect of that is that we can block new porn sites that were created 10 minutes ago, um, even if they've never been scanned or categorized before. You can't access that with our software, number one. Number two, we can filter within sites, so much of the internet is now gray. It used to be black and white, now it's all gray. And so whether it's Twitter or Reddit, which does have redeeming content and also has really problematic content, we can filter out the bad within those sites. So you don't have to make the decision of an all or nothing approach. Um, So that's the second thing. The third thing is we've gone to great lengths to really lock the back doors, to make sure that you can't just skirt this in a way that um, regrettably is very easy to skirt other filters that are out there, a uh, filter that you can get around easily is not a very good filter. So our hope and our primary use case is a parent would install this on their kid's first device to make sure that they can get the good of the internet without the bad. So that's a little bit about what we actually do. The how to me is really exciting. We're leveraging cutting edge at really Tech. We've trained artificial intelligence to identify nudity and pornography with 99.7% accuracy. And then the hardest part is we figured out how to do that in real time, in literally milliseconds. Our software, once you type in a website, can scan every word, every image, every video and pull out the bad stuff before we populate the good stuff on your screen. So we think of it as a tech forward approach that's as dynamic as the internet itself um, that really offers kind of a cutting edge and novel approach to this problem. So that's a little bit about what we do. Our broader hope is that we can spark a cultural shift Um, because I, look, I I recognize I've got four kids at the end of the day, I can have every single device in my home locked down, but my kid could go next door or they can go to the library or they'll have a friend at school who doesn't have that. And we want canopy to be the tool that gives families the space to kind of push exposure off, to limit it. uh, And to give you a chance to have the hard conversations that need to be had so that, um, regrettably, when they do encounter this kind of content in the world, they're equipped for it. They know what it is. They know how to respond. And they know that they're made for something greater and higher that's going to gonna deliver them so much more joy and happiness than this cheap thrill um, that has a lot of allure but isn't really uh, substantive. So um, look, we, we come at this recognizing we're not a silver bullet, but we think we're a critical part. You can't get those other things unless you can make that space. For these conversations. To answer your final question, what do you do for someone who is in the throes of an addiction? Gosh, that's a hard one. Look, first and foremost, like I think that this is and can be, and look, the science is there to back it up, as addictive as other drugs out there. And when you're dealing with something that potent with its ability to really warp your brain, like oftentimes you need help. It's so like our first thing is like, treat this as something that's serious and go get serious help from a counselor, from a a medical doctor, from someone that you trust in your life, who's got experience helping people step away from this. Um, The second thing that I would say is for people that are uh, one step removed, understand that this is an addiction. And this is so important in particular for parents uh, whose kids are addicted or for spouses um, who are addicted. Oftentimes these people don't want to be doing this but they're trapped. Like they desperately want to escape it. So don't look at this activity as, um, as a complete failure on their part. As if it's that they've made the moral calculus and they're like, they're fine doing it, right? More often than not, people want to stop and they just can't. And so I think that hopefully results in a little bit of grace extended to help people as they navigate this. The last thing that I would say is nature abhors a vacuum. And right now we have a culture that says, this is fine, it's no big deal. And like fulfillment of your desires and your appetites is like, like, what's wrong with that? And I think making the hard case, but the very worthwhile case that we are made for something greater and higher. And like from a neurochemical term, again, I'm, I'm, uh, my wife is a neuroscientist, so I geek out on this. But if I'm gonna go from like the, the neuroscience side, There's dopamine, which is released when you get like the cheap thrill, like you have a little bit of sugar or someone likes one of your posts and like it fades and it's gone. And you need more of a hit to get that same uh, dopamine rush the next time. Serotonin, on the other hand, is like that deep sense of fulfillment that you get when you've climbed a mountain and you're tired and you're hungry and you're thirsty, but you did something worthy. Or it's the sense that you get when you've invested in a friendship for a long time and you're bearing the fruits of all that toiling or your marriage is good and you know it, even if you're up at two in the morning because your kid's been sick or yeah. whatnot. We want serotonin in our lives. And however you want to frame that, whether you want to make a moral argument, whether you want to make a geeky, nerdy neuroscience argument like my wife and I do, um, or w- whatever you want to do. like I think that's a powerful message, especially boosted by the fact that most people who are dealing with this now know that it does not make them happy. In fact, it makes them miserable. And they know that. But if you can frame that there's something better out there that really is going to deliver them what they truly want, like they have to know and believe that that's there. And if you can walk them across those hot coals to get there, that's a gift. And I think that's what really gives them uh, the greatest chance to overcome this, to fully rise above it and to move on to
1: the pastures that uh, we all should should seek. Absolutely. That's a beautiful closing. That's great. That's great practical advice um, for everybody out there who's kind of going through this or know somebody who is, which is basically all of us. I think we all at least probably are within uh, contact or somebody in our circle at this point. Um, Definitely somebody who's been exposed to pornography, but probably a lot of us, you know, it even gets me thinking about like just, you know, some of my close core friendships. Like it's just something that we should talk about. We should normalize talking about, Um, you know, just kind of checking in like your, your friendships that are the, the virtuous friendships, you know, uh, it's, it's worth checking and asking, um, you know, when, if you have the people in your life who you ask about their spiritual life and how things are going, like it doesn't have to be, you know, if you, if you're getting together once a week or once a month, uh, maybe not every time, but once a year, it's probably good to check in and, and ask each other. I know I've had some good friends who have asked me. Similar questions, you know, just general like chastity questions, but sometimes it catches you off guard, but it's always, it definitely shows you that somebody really cares. And so it can be daunting, I think, to ask somebody about that, but it is really an encouragement to the person being asked that this person genuinely cares about me and they're willing to be a little awkward and a little forward in order to, to really check in.
2: Yeah. And like, like you, you hit the nail on the head. This stuff is awkward. Like it is going to be awkward and uncomfortable, um, but it is worth it right the opportunity both to convey to someone that like you care enough to like move through that awkwardness yeah um, and that that friendship is important enough and like them getting the good thing that they actually want is important enough to like wade through it um tricky to figure out sometimes but like so worth it on the other end so like i i totally commend that and um i think you're spot on
1: Absolutely. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. I'll have obviously links for everything Canopy, and we're going to be sharing a lot more about that um, coming up here soon. So I'm excited to to be partnering with you guys a little bit and to be a, a small part of what will hopefully be, you know, the cultural re- revolution that I really feel like um, God is calling your organization to. And so we're happy to be partnering with you guys and just really proud of all the work you're doing.
2: We are so grateful, Nathan. This is, um, this is like a big, big project and you know, one of my favorite quotes is ask not for a lighter load, but for broader shoulders. Um, and I've since come to learn that's both, um, that we should ourselves have broader shoulders, but we should also find other people with those broad shoulders to like bear the weight with us and like push forward on the important thing that needs to be done. So yes, thank you man. for lending your shoulders to, uh, to this fight. And, um, I'm hopeful. I, I know, like this was a, it's a dark conversation. This stuff is weighty and heavy, Um, But like we have, I think, a a real chance, both on the technological side and the cultural side, to move forward uh, and get us past this. Um, So I'm so grateful for the time today and uh, for your partnership. Just thank you very much.
1: Yeah, absolutely, man. It's going to be great. And so we're praying for you. I think pornography is a huge killer of excellence. And so it's really critical to everybody here at Seeking Excellence that you recognize that and that you accept that. So highly encourage you to, to go and check out their website. Like I said, we'll have it all linked. I'm going to be talking about it a lot more coming up. And so you'll have plenty of chances to learn about it. But thank you again, Sean. And just want to encourage everybody out there to, to can you fight hard and, and strive to be your best.